back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On October 25, 2019, the Center hosted a conference titled The Administration of Immigration, where experts discussed various aspects of immigration law and policy. As always, the panel discussions centered around new papers, which are available on our website, and so are the videos of the discussions. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast, and in this episode, we have the conference's third panel, titled Costs of Our Immigration System, Who Does the Burden Fall On? It's centered around two new papers. The first, by Professor Ming-Su Chen of the University of Colorado Boulder, and Zachary New of Joseph and Hall was titled Silence and the Second Wall. It considered some of the regulatory and other legal and practical barriers that affect immigration. The second paper by Julie Axelrod of the Center for Immigration Studies was titled A Seat at the Table for Citizens, Why the National Environmental Policy Act Applies to Immigration and How Best to Implement This Long Overdue Reform. I joined the three authors on the panel with some comments on both papers, and the discussion was moderated by Andrew Kloster, then the Deputy Director of the Gray Center. I hope you enjoy this discussion. Thank you all. Uh, we're very lucky uh, to showcase on this panel two other papers that uh, the Center supported in the immigration and administration space. Um, so this panel is Cost of Our Immigration System, Who Does the Burden Fall On? These two papers uh, are wide-ranging, but do share some common ground dealing with uh, costs and benefits of our immigration system. So uh, I will begin uh, with introducing uh, the author of one of the two papers, uh, Julie Axelrod. She's the Chief uh, Litigation Counsel for the Center for Immigration Studies. She, uh, her paper is A Seat at the Table for Citizens, why the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, applies to immigration and how best to implement this long overdue reform. Uh, Julie manages the CIS's uh, environmental and FOIA litigation, uh, quote, dedicated to uncovering the impact of immigration on American society. So please, uh, Julie. Thank you, and thank you for hosting this, um, this uh, talk and for having me here today. Um, so as as Andrew explained, um, I um, have I'm centering much much of my litigation on the statute called uh, NEPA or the National Environmental Policy Act, which was passed in 1969 and signed by President Richard Nixon, and it's known as the Magna Carta of our nation's um, environmental laws. And what it was, it was very very broad. And what it basically said was that all agencies, you know, when they act, they should think about the environmental consequences of their actions before they take them, and they should provide a method for the public to comment and make their voices heard. And so what this has turned into is has basically like a, a three-part, well, like a framework where all agencies kind of decide whether any action they take, like large action they take, such as promulgating a regulation or, you know, making a large decision fits into one of three categories. So either one that's categorically excluded from having any environmental impact. So like by its nature, this action has no environmental impact or one that might. And so they do what's called an environmental assessment or EA or 
And after the CA, they, if they decide it doesn't, they just they issue what's known as a finding of no, uh, no significant impact. Or they do a, a very large analysis called an environmental impact statement. So what they apply this to is all kinds of things. So people think of it in primarily in terms of building infrastructure. So you, you have to build a, a building or get a government permit to get a building. And you have to do an environmental analysis of you know, what, what that building is going to do. You build a dam, what's going to happen? So, but the statute itself never says anything about if, if the federal government is involved in building infrastructure, it has to consider the environmental consequences. It just says anything that has environmental consequences, think about it. And the statute also says specifically that it's concerned about population growth. And, you know, it says un unregulated population growth, population growth without end is not in the national interest. So this is what brings me to immigration, which is today the, the cause of population growth in, in the U.S. Is, is largely immigration, about, about more than 90% immigration, depending on project, which projection you use, but, but census projection. And yet they, they take all kinds of actions. They create programs, they expand programs, and they never, they never even fit it into fit these programs, these immigration actions into the NEPA framework at all. They just act like uh, NEPA doesn't apply to things like that. So the question is, why? You know, why, why is this, why is this passed through? I mean, I think I, my paper, a lot of that, a lot of my paper was about, you know, how did that happen? So I look at the, the history and I think the answer is nobody really called them on it and they just, they just did it. And a lot of agencies didn't really want to do NEPA because it, it's trouble to figure out what the environmental impact of your of your actions are, and um, there really hasn't been a lot of litigation over it. Um, in part because uh, environmental groups haven't haven't chosen to sue over it, and until now, or that's what some of my litigation is. So, but they get, they haven't really attempted to justify it other than, well, they say, well, you'd have to do a lot of speculation to do that. Well, there's a lot of speculation in many NEPA analysis. And uh, an early court decision says, you know, just because you have to use forecasting doesn't mean you can just, you know, toss your hands in the air and say, you know, this is crystal ball inquiry. We don't have to do it. So, you know that that's kind of the state of affairs. They've they've never worked um, a large part of of the environmental the environmentally significant programs in this country, which is immigration, into into our NEPA framework. And you know you might ask, well, why is immigration environmentally significant at all? Well, you know, population growth tends to lead to all the impacts that humans have on the environment becoming larger. So pollution, more people, more pollution, you know, more, you know, more air pollution, more use of water, more use of any kind of resources, you know, greater development, less open spaces. If you look, if you look at today, the reason why a lot of American open spaces are disappearing, it's, it's largely because the population is growing. The population is largely growing because of immigration. So, and, and this, this, um, the impacts of population growth come up all the time in actual NEPA 
analysis, you know, environmental impact statements. So, you know, I think this is a big gap. And, and furthermore, I, I, I believe if this hadn't been overlooked, there would be an opportunity for the public to make its voice heard on the impacts of immigration in their local communities, which I think has been missing from the national conversation. And the impacts of immigration on the environment has been missing from the national conversation. Because when you have, when you have a NEPA hearing, what the government has to do is it has to you know, publicize what it's gonna do, often hold hearings, give people a chance to come in, comment, say what they believe, then again, publish, talk about what they, you know, what they plan to do, what their alternatives will do, what, what they're gonna do that might mitigate the effect on the environment. And you know, if, if they're gonna do what they're gonna, they, they can decide to do any, any, you know, NEPA is a procedural statute. So they, they don't have to decide on any action or not decide on an action because it's bad for the environment. But they have to tell, tell the people openly what the effect or what they think the effect of any program or policy they're going to have. So I think if, if there were points where the public could come in and express their views, express what's happening in their local community on immigrants, you know, the creation of a large immigration program, for instance, I think that would alleviate the pressure that is, that is built from a lack of public voice on immigration. If you look at the state of immigration policy debate today, you see people are really angry at each other and we haven't, we haven't gotten a major immigration bill passed in a long time. And I think a lot of that is because the public doesn't doesn't really feel represented. I think, you know, every time every time Congress gets together and says we're going to do immigration reform, they they hear from large interest groups, and I think a lot of times they think, according to the political consensus, that they've got a political consensus where everything is happy, and then the 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 people weigh in on the proposed bills, and they're not very happy with it. So, you know, that, that, that's led to a great deal of discontent. And I think part of the discontent is that so much is decided by administration these days of, of the state, you know, of the bureaucracy, and immigration is no exception to that. Many, many things get decided not by Congress, but by the daily operation of the administrative state. And in the case of immigration, there's five different agencies that make all these decisions, and the the discretionary decisions can vary by by agency by uh, by president who's in power or, or you know yes or no you know uh, for instance the DACA program was a creation completely by discretion of of the the, the bureaucracy in power at the time. There was no, there was no congressional decision to create a new immigration program. So, you know, that happens a lot in immigration where you have expansions of immigration that were never, that the public never got a chance to weigh in on. And, you know, as, as, as we can see from the 2016 election, I think a lot of people have a lot of frustrations. And so I believe NEPO was meant to be an 
outlet for the public to tell the, the bureaucratic state what was going on in general. If you look at when it was passed in 1969, it was actually passed at a time when the administrative state was really growing. So, you know, that decade was a time when they created more bureaucracies, like including the EPA, um, consumer, consumer protection bureaucracies, but they, they created all these bureaucracies and they delegated a lot of authority to them in that one decade that, you know, more than they had in the rest of history combined. So I tend to think of NEPA as, as a idea to counterweigh all this, all the bureaucracy creating, which, which took decisions out of Congress and took decisions out of the democratic process to kind of put the people back in to the, the, the you know, to give them at least a chance to get their voice heard. And so, you know, whether that works perfectly or not, at least it's something. And I believe it should be, should be given to the people in immigration. So, and I believe the law, also, there's, no, there's no grounding in the law for ignoring that when it's such an environmentally impactful uh, program of the government, series of programs of the government, rather. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. Our next uh, two speakers are the co-authors uh, Ming-Su Chun and Zachary New. Their paper is Silence in the Second Wall. And just as a reminder, again, all of these papers are available on our website, um, and we hope that you do take a look and read them. Uh, so uh, Professor Chun is the associate and associate professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where she's a faculty member, uh, the founding faculty director of the Immigration Law and Policy Program. Zachary New uh, is a graduate of that law school and is now uh, in private practice. Uh, so please. Thank you, Andrew. Um, thank you to the Gray Center for organizing both the roundtable last June um, and also this fall. Um, and thank you to all of you for coming. Um, I did want to say, and I, and I mentioned this to the Gray Center organizers last night, um, it's been a valuable forum to um, share some ideas um, that came out of an earlier paper that we had been in the progress of, in the process of writing um, about sanctuary movements, um, and thus the title of the paper is Silence and the Second Wall, um, and it was meant to describe the lack of response in large part to some of the policies that we're going to describe today. Um, in order to fit better into the conference theme, I think what we're going to focus on instead is the policies themselves um, and then some of the consequences of them. But I'm happy to discuss the sanctuary piece of it, the resistance movement, um, so to speak, in Q&A, if that's of interest to the audience. Um, but the, the conversation um, that we wanted to introduce here is essentially to make visible something that hasn't been very visible. Um, so just for um, the sake of uh, sort of division of labor, um, I'm going to start by describing to you what the key concept is in the paper of the second wall. Um, and then I'm going to turn it over to my co-author, Zach New, to talk about some policy examples that will help to illustrate this concept. Um, so, you know, one of the clarion calls of President Trump's administration was this idea of building the wall. Um, and indeed, this idea of the wall is one that we've seen now reverberate through all three branches of government, right? We've seen, we've seen President Trump talk about the wall on the campaign trail while he's been in the White House um, in his 
um, attempt to declare a national emergency at the border. We've seen the government shut down um, because of the inability of Congress to find agreement around those ideas. Uh, we've seen an injunction in the courts as well um, about the idea of a national emergency, right? So all of these examples that we've seen are very much about a particular kind of wall, um, what in the paper we would refer to as the first wall. Um, this is the wall that is you know, along the southern border of the United States. Um, it is a wall that is um, visible and tangible. You know, this is the reference to the steel and concrete barrier at the border. Um, the target of that wall is primarily those who are crossing the border um, in various states of documentation. Um, and the government actors that are typically involved within the Department of Homeland Security are Customs and Border Patrol, or ICE, um, in the process of effectuating removals. Um, so that's probably the dominant image that people think about when they think about immigration policy these days. Um, what we wanted to focus on is a different kind of wall. Um, and that is what we're calling the second wall. Um, so the idea of the second wall is to focus on a different set of policies that I think are nonetheless continuous with the broader, very enforcement-minded immigration policy agenda um, that we're seeing take shape um, right now. Um, before I get into the characteristics, let me give just a little bit of organizational background um, in recognizing that the Department of Homeland Security um, does have three branches beneath it that pertain to immigration. Um, CBP, or Customs and Border Patrol, as I just mentioned, is the one that is primarily um, concerned with enforcement at the border. Um, ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is also concerned with enforcement um, within the interior of the country. Um, and then the agency that we are mostly talking about, that is the source of many of the rules that we're describing, um, is the USCIS, or the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Um, and at least since 2003, when DHS was created in its current form, USCIS has traditionally been tasked with the service side of immigration. Um, that is to say, they're the agency that processes visas um, and naturalization applications and green cards um, as various types of immigration benefits. There has been, I think, um, consonant with some of the specific changes that we're going to talk about, um, there have been changes to the uh, mission of that agency. Um, both on a literal level of rewriting the agency's mission statement on the website, um, and also at the level of the, the creation and implementation of these policies. So what are we talking about when we talk about the second wall? Um, I, I think some of the key features to focus on um, as we get into the specific examples are that unlike the first wall, um, it is typically not visible. Um, some have said there's a report out called the, um, called the Invisible Wall um, that talks about many of these policies um, as being highly technical, um, somewhat obscure, um, and in many cases uh, published in a format um, that would be hard for the public to find. Um, many of these are policy guidances, some of which are internal memos, some of which do eventually get posted on a website or otherwise shared, um, but very few um, have gone through any kind of notice and comment policy or are responsive to actual statutory changes um, in the USCIS's implementation of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Um, there's a second sense, sense in which the wall is hard to see, and that is that it is hard to understand, and that makes it somewhat inaccessible or sort of impenetrable um, that way. 
Um, the target of the second wall um, is, is different. It is much larger and more varied um, than the target of the first wall. Um, many of the main targets are legal immigrants um, who are trying to follow the channels of legal migration. That is to say, individuals who are coming to the United States with employer sponsors or family sponsors um, and are not the typical targets, um, which is to say those who are crossing without documentation across that U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and overall, I think what I would emphasize, especially for the purposes of this conference, um, is that there are many ways in which the second wall essentially functions as a bureaucratic border um, rather than a physical border um, at the U.S.-Mexico side of the country. So at that level of abstraction, I am the law professor on the panel. Um, I'll hand it over to my co-author, who's currently in immigration practice, um, to describe just a few of the 20 or so examples that are in the paper. We've cut it down to two or three for your benefit today. Um, and in, in talking about the theme of the panel, um, what we thought we could do was to describe the policy, but also to offer um, our thoughts on what some of the consequences of those policies are as we go so that we can tie it into this discussion about costs and benefits. And I apologize. I think my mic is not on, so taking Ming's mic for this uh, this portion. So as Professor Chen mentioned, um, our paper is not directly linked to the economics of immigration or anything along those lines. Um, it's a a piece more about sanctuary and more about movements um, of resistance to changes in legal migration. Um, but to tie into the, th the theme of the panel, um, I'll bring in a couple of examples that um, we litigate frequently as well as examples that are in the paper. Um, we primarily think that there's three groups that these uh, costs fall upon. Um, the first being the individual immigrants themselves and the petitioners, uh, companies, and the family members. Um, obviously, um, increased costs, increased denial rates, um, um, things like that. Um, there's also some costs to the administrative state and kind of the rule of law in general. Um, and then finally, there's costs to the American public and what it means to be an American um, in the way that these changes go about. Um, so starting with individual immigrants and their petitioning companies. So um, our example that we'll use is the Buy American, Hire American um, executive order that went out. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with the H-1B visa. It's for high-skilled workers, a lot of the times tech workers. Um, the quintessential example is the uh, tech worker from India who goes to Silicon Valley to um, do some sort of computer programming or engineering degree, something along those lines. Um, after Buy American, Hire American, Baja, um, DHS and USCIS in particular started to shift resources from adjudication towards fraud, uh, fraud investigation to a much more significant degree, which slowed down adjudications, increasing a backlog. Um, denial rates skyrocketed. Um, I think they quintupled in the last four years. Um, requests for evidence rates have skyrocketed as well. So you have about a 30% chance any time that you, uh, request this type of visa to get a request for evidence, which obviously increases costs and legal fees and time for companies and things like that. Um, so the individuals themselves um, are, are experiencing higher costs in a number of ways, temporally, financially, um, and just in a more stress personally um, kind of way, um, which leads to uh, to the second group, the administrative state and the uh, the rule of law in general. Um, what we're increasingly seeing 
is this sort of rulemaking by, by fiat where patterns of adjudication change without any notice and comment and without even a policy memo being issued. Uh, so, for example, um, I mean, just uh, recently, actually, uh, ALA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, got some FOIA results back um, that uh, demonstrated that um, USCIS has changed what qualifies as a specialty occupation for an H-1B visa. Um, it shows that uh, USCIS has changed its uh, adjudicatory, adjudicatory focus on third-party placement, so IT consultants and uh, computer programs, uh, computer programmers in general have a unilaterally harder time getting uh, an H-1B visa, and that's um, not been published, and we wouldn't know about it besides the fact that kind of practitioners saw that computer programmers were having a much harder time getting these visas and that it was taking longer. Um, and that consultants were constantly getting denials and requests for evidence along these lines. Um, I actually think this is a very good point of uh, connection with Julie's piece. I think uh, Julie and, and myself are pretty far apart when it comes to our views on immigration. Um, but we believe the same thing, that the public should have a chance to speak when it comes to change to immigration. Um, when a policy is issued, it should follow the traditional APA notice and comment gu guidelines. Um, if a legislative rule is being issued, it should be done so in the in the proper channels, a policy memo, something like that, so the public can have a voice. Um, instead, what we're seeing is just rulemaking by fiat and um, adjudications that um, don't make sense under the, the guidance that's currently out there, um, which leads to the final and uh, probably the greatest cost, and that's to America in general, the, the state of the, of the United States. Um, Great metaphorical example is uh, acting director of the USCIS, Ken Cuccinelli, very recently rewrote The New Colossus on national TV, um, which is you know, one of the most defining poems of, of uh, our nation, um, stating first off that uh, it's not just the tired and poor, it's the tired and poor who can stand on their own two feet, as well as the fact that the tired and poor are all from Europe. Um, that's a, a fairly defining uh, poem that he's rewriting. Um, and one piece that, sorry, I haven't changed the slide at all, um, is um, extremely important to, uh, I guess, the, who, who, is, um, who is an American is naturalizations, and uh, especially military naturalizations. Uh, Dr. Chen and I both independently and uh, kind of serendipitous we uh, are writing papers about military naturalizations and um, how those are declining to a significant extent, just a massive uh, decline in who is able to naturalize through the military. Um, the numbers, if you guys would like. Um, from 2017, the military received 10,900 applications for naturalization. Um, to 2018, it was 3,000. Um, as of Q3 2019, we're currently at 2,200. Um, massively declining rates of military naturalizations. And um, I think that besides for the restrictionist groups who really don't believe in immigration as a whole, uh, we can kind of agree that of all intending immigrants, the ones that go overseas and fight for the United States who swear an oath of allegiance to the flag and to the country are the ones that we want to keep. They're the ones that deserve most citizenship and to join the polity and to, you know, have the protections that come along with formal citizenship. 
Um, so with that, I will leave the rest of the time for questions. All right, thank you. So our last, <clears throat> our last panelist is our center's uh, executive director, Adam White. Uh, he's also an assistant professor of law here at the law school and is also a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Relevant for this panel is Adam is one of the few people in the room, Julie mentioned this, but she didn't use the acronym. He knows that Fonzie is not just a character on Happy Days. Yeah, I was going to use that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I should never have used that acronym. With his, uh, his time in, in, in private practice working on NEPA and environmental law. So please, Adam. Thanks. Um, as familiar faces here know, uh, usually my job here is, is the easy is one of the easy jobs, right? Moderating the panel and, and staying out of the way while everybody else offers their opinions. I was so struck, though, by these two articles during our roundtable a few months ago that um, I asked uh, Andrew if he'd let me uh, jump into this panel as a as a actual contributor to the discussion. Um, um, and actually, Zach alluded to to why in a way. Um, you know, in the most obvious respects, these two papers um, are pointed in very different directions. Um, uh, but looking more deeply, I think these two papers both uh, raise very similar questions about the ways in which our laws are administered, the ways in which our laws are written, and the ways in which both administration and legislation fall short of, uh, of what people deserve. And as Andrew sort of already tipped, uh, I'm a recovering NEPA lawyer myself. Uh, the first uh, many years of my legal practice were spent focusing more than anything else on on NEPA. And so I'll have a little bit more to say on Julie's uh, paper, uh, but both papers are fascinating, and I'll start with the second wall. As already has been discussed, uh, for as much as we, we debate and, and de discuss immigration policy, our broad debates focus too little on the day-to-day -day administrative burdens that have profound impacts on immigrants and visitors, especially those who are here legally. We're very good at debating immigration policy in the most salient big picture terms, uh, but of course uh, it seems that the things that most directly impact everybody on a day-to-day -day basis are the ways in which the current framework is implemented, uh, oftentimes under frameworks that long pre-exist the current debates uh, and frameworks that were created without the current debates in mind. Um, this is perhaps, again, the most challenging part of, of modern immigration policy is coming to grips with not just the newest policies and frameworks, but coming to grips with the oldest policies and frameworks and seeing how they impact uh, all stakeholders in the current immigration debates. Um, I was fascinated by the second wallpaper because they go through it so uh, with such detail in describing all the different aspects of, of modern immigration that uh, immigration policy and administration uh, that effectively could construct a second wall, uh, a wall that is very much built uh, and the wall that's built, but we can't see, as they say. Um, and they detail not just the case studies, but the basic features of the second wall. The fact that it's, it's invisible or at least obscured, the fact that it consists of so many procedural hurdles, the fact that uh, there's opacity, it's hard to say what any of it really means sometimes. Um, and the fact that they detail this in the paper, I think this is, this is an important point, the fact that so much of it is just the shifting of policies or the collision of contradiction, contradictory policies or the emphasizing of one policy priority over another, uh, at times putting national security front and center, 
at times putting merit front and center, at times putting uh, family front and center. And so I'm glad they illustrated all of that. And then I'm also glad that this paper then ties these issues in immigration back to even more fundamental values of transparency, accountability, the challenges of complexity and incoherence. And when I got to the point in the paper where they talked about complexity and incoherence, I thought, as I so often do, um, of the Federalist. I thought of James Madison, and I thought of Federalist 62, where he talks about the challenges of complexity in law and the threat that complexity itself can pose to liberty. And so pardon me for just quoting him. He said, quote, it poisons the blessing of liberty itself. It will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice. If the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read or so incoherent that they cannot be understood, if they be repealed or revised before they are promulgated, or they undergo such incessant changes that no man, uh, that no man who knows what the law is today can guess what the law is tomorrow. Um, and I'll get back to where I first came across that quote. But just on its face, it so clearly applies to so much of uh, the current debate, and it goes to the heart of what they describe as the second law, the second wall. Um, where did I stumble across that quote? Um, since it is in the flyover country of the Federalist, Federal 62. I'm from Iowa, so I can make flyover country jokes. Uh, but it comes from Justice Gorsuch and one of his opinions on administrative law. Um, Justice Gorsuch, even before he was a justice, when he was a judge, and he was writing these opinions raising just basic questions about modern administration. Uh, his most significant and salient cases were immigration cases, cases like uh, Danny's Robles. Um, what was the other one? I jotted it down. It's been a little while since I've thought about this. Brizuela versus Lynch. Cases where he took um, the immigration context as the place to sort of raise fundamental questions about, about the complexity of modern administration and the challenges of administration. And that's not a coincidence because the questions that Gorsuch and others raise about administration, of course, they apply generally. They're felt with particular salience in the context of immigration, where the human cost is the most obvious. These are questions that go to the heart of administration in general, the administrative state in general. There are a lot of second walls in our society, not just in immigration. Okay, the second paper, a seat at the table. Um, like Zach and Ming's paper, I found Julie's paper compelling too. Um, as we mentioned, as it happens, NEPA is a subject I know well. Um, my, my former clients would say it's a subject I, I had to know too, uh, too well since we dealt with it so much. Um, but NEPA is an indispensable law. It's also a profoundly challenging one. And Julie's paper really illustrates this well. Whenever I think about NEPA, the first thing I think of is a great book that was written on a few years ago. The title was Making Bureaucracies Think. Um, and that's the point of NEPA. It's not, it is to give people an opportunity for voice, but it's also a requirement that agencies think and think seriously about the impacts of what they do, the environmental impacts. And not just the obvious ones, but thinking um, not just about the thinkable, but thinking about the unthinkable, trying to think three or four steps down the, the chain of causation to what the third and, and fourth uh, order environmental impacts of agency action are. Not just when agency, uh, an agency wants to do physical infrastructure, like building a wall, um, or even when an agency is approving somebody's infrastructure project, like a pipeline, those are my old clients, but on any number of agency policies, on the plain, the plain terms of NEPA, if an agency action is going to have significant environmental impacts, the agency needs to think seriously about it and explain these things. 
Um, it doesn't have to change their mind about what they want to do. They just need to analyze the impacts and explain things. That's NEPA at its best, is forcing agencies to think and to explain and to listen. Now, NEPA at its worst is captured in the old phrase, the process is the punishment. Um, NEPA sometimes becomes sort of a black hole or a black box of process and procedural argument, um, uh, an argument for its own sake sometimes. Um, and the challenge then is making sure that when NEPA applies that we're getting the very best version of it. Um, but the thing is the statute's so broad. It's incredibly broad. Um, it's written in such um, vague terms. Um, it announces grand purposes, but it gives too little serious guidance as to how agencies are actually supposed to grapple with this. This goes back to the very beginning of NEPA, where one of the most famous D.C. Circuit cases, Calvert Cliffs, the D.C. Circuit had to explain to a federal agency, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, no, you actually do need to take this stuff seriously. It's the kind of statute that agencies wanted to just kind of shrug off. Um, it took Judge Skelly Wright in the D.C. Circuit to say, no, this is, this is serious. Take it seriously. Um, but because it's written so broadly, we count on administrators and judges to make practical and prudential judgments about how far to go with it. Um, Julie's broad point is correct. There is no immigration exception to NEPA. There's none. It's on its face. It applies it, just as it applies to any agency action. Um, the challenge then is thinking through what that means in practice, and Julie is working through this in her paper. Um, one of the challenges is that it's about agency action, not an agency's uh, inaction. And sometimes there's, sometimes, um, you know, there's a fine line uh, between the, an action and an action not to act, um, a decision not to act. And that's something NEPA has to grapple with all the time. But at the end of the day, NEPA is about agency action, not about the tacit allowance of the status quo. In that sense, NEPA has a bias towards liberty. It focuses on government action, not on a government's failure to change the status quo. So that's, that's one challenge in application. Another challenge is in thinking through what, what the impacts are. Um, in her paper, Julie refers to um, uh, agency actions that cause national population growth. And in the immigration context, that's obvious. There are people we see, people we know, people who live in communities and, and like all of us, have impacts on the environment. Uh, it can't be that NEPA applies to any sort of policy. It's hard for me to believe that NEPA applies to any policy just because it, has, it affects national population growth. I was just sort of sketching through some hypotheticals. If Health and Human Services Department develops family-friendly policies that help to grow our population, does that require an EPA analysis? I don't think it has in the past, and it, it, if you would have told me that outside of the context of an immigration discussion, I would have been sort of surprised by it. Similarly, if the FDA appro approves life-saving or life-extending medicines that grow the population, does that require an EPA analysis? Again, that seems pretty far-fetched to me, and we can come up with even more far-fetched hypotheticals to kind of chuckle at them or shrug them off. We can't shrug off the one, though, that Julie is talking about because it's, it's so concrete. It's a core case, I think, where the federal agencies are taking action that we know are going to have easily foreseeable effects in terms of new populations in new places involving uh, affecting their environment around them. Um, and so I think it is a challenge for critics of this position to say, well, no, there's an ex immigration exemption for NEPA. As with Ming and, and, and Zach's paper, I think Julie's paper points to a much more fundamental problem 
of administration, namely that of delegation. Congress wrote a short and vague statute and is now trusting agencies and judges to make very hard choices. Congress surely did not have immigration in mind when they wrote NEPA, but we don't care so much about what they had in mind. We care more about what they put on the page. Um, this seems to me a place where Congress ought to clarify what it really wants. And it can do that, and it has done that. NEPA and immigration have collided before. We saw this in the Real ID Act of 2005, where Congress, in trying to incentivize more uh, infrastructure on the, on, the, on the border, gave an express carve-out on NEPA, saying NEPA doesn't apply here. And obviously that's different in a major sense. There we're talking about physical infrastructure, where the environmental impacts are even more salient. Right. But the fact is, that was a place where Congress had a policy in mind. They legislated it and they knew that if they wanted to get it done, they're going to have to create a NEPA exception. Um, Congress ought to return to this and think about it. Until then, we're faced with what Scalia famously called elephants in mouse holes. Or as the Supreme Court said in the FDA case, um, when the FDA first asserted jurisdiction over tobacco, we're confident that Congress could not have intended to delegate a decision of such an economic and political significance to an agency in so cryptic. A fashion. I think it's fair to apply. I think it's fair to, to to say that about the NEPA argument here. Again, Congress did not mean to make NEPA an immigration law, but it did make NEPA a law, and we have to take it seriously as wall as law. Um, it is, it seems to me, a second wall, which may have been higher and harder than Congress intended, and we need to grapple seriously with that. And I'm grateful for for Julie's paper uh, for for doing so. All right. So. Uh... I'll just take the moderator's prerogative here and ask the first question. Uh, well, actually, first, I would uh, do any of you have responses to each other's comments? Please take a moment. Oh, I do. Do you want to start? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to respond to you, I, I think you actually mentioned restrictionist groups, which I think you meant, meant us. So in um, saying that many things have been done under uh, but we would never have known except that Ayla had been FOIAing. And I'm, you know, I'd say, yeah, you know, that's not new at all to the Trump administration. I mean, whatever's happened in the past few years, certainly um, the groups I've been working for have been complaining for many, many, many years about policies not going through notice and comment, and often that the public would have no way of even knowing it existed. Um, except for FOIA. And um, I'll also say that the public, the public is really affected by immigration, but the public doesn't have lawyers, you know, thousands of lawyers making sure that, um, you know, someone, someone's figuring out what, what policies are, are happening, you know, under the radar, so to speak, because uh, there's no such thing as a, as a lawyer to, to keep people out of the country, it doesn't exist. So, you know, there there's a lot fewer lawyers, you know, paying attention. There's only there's only a few lawyers out there doing doing FOIA and a few groups. So I'd I'd say certainly the transparency concerns you you brought up, um, you know, apply to, you know, immigration expansionist programs happening without without any public notice and comment as well. I think this is actually the area that Zach gestured to as common ground between our papers. Yeah. yeah. Um, essentially in different forms and in different fora, um, wanting to see more administrative accountability um, and, and whoever is in charge. 
Um, and I should be clear that, as I said, the paper has about 20 examples. The examples are not all things that started under the Trump administration, and that's not our claim. Um, I think our claim is that the invisible wall is an extension of the immigration enforcement agenda, which I would say has been in place for at least 30 years um, and probably in um, dramatic form for at least the ten last 10. So that does cross over more than one administration. So in that sense, it's not meant to be an anti-Trump paper, um, but it is meant to highlight a specific set of policies that illuminate these broader cross-cutting themes. Um, connecting to the question that I actually had for you um, on your paper, and it, it draws very much on um, Adam's closing remarks about whether or not NEPA did intend to include an exemption for immigration. Um, and, and essentially it goes to this question for those who study or practice immigration law, um, you've been confronted it, with it many times, this idea of immigration exceptionalism. You know, and so what I'm curious to know is, you know, my understanding is that in many areas of law, um, including the Real ID Act example that Adam mentioned, um, but also the executive order on guidance that came out about two weeks ago, um, there are many exemptions for immigration law, right? That EO on, on guidance had a specific exception for the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so that being the case, I would be curious to know, um, would you want... NEPA to apply for all kinds of rules that come out of the all three branches of DHS that pertain to immigration, um, or only for certain kinds of rules. Um, if I recall last June when we talked about an earlier draft of the paper, um, you were pushed by the group to talk a little bit about what specific kinds of policies you thought would increase the environmental impact, um, presumably on the United States and not on the globe, since as people cross borders, the environmental impacts um, to the world writ large um, would, would also be impacted. But as I understand it, NEPA would, your, I think your focus is mostly on the United States. Um, the example that you gave last June was DACA. So that would be an example um, of including a group who in that case are already physically present in the United States, right, but otherwise might be subject to removal. Um, so I am curious to know, would you equally want NEPA to apply to actions perhaps such as the ones that we're talking about, where USCIS rules are being rewritten in a more exclusionary matter? And then more generally, would you want the kinds of justifications for treating immigration differently, which presumably are um, more deference to the agency because it is engaged in law enforcement, and because it is engaged in issues that might pertain to national security? Um, would you want that kind of deference um, to be waived for DHS more generally? Um I would say, you know, first, the, the first thing to do would, would be actually to have each agency that, that touches immigration, uh, sort of repromulgate NEPA procedures themselves, you know, start at the beginning. Because the, the first thing you have to, you can't really start by, you know, applying, applying NEPA to procedural changes to something that, isn't isn't really new. Maybe the changes are new, but the original promulgation of the rule never went through NEPA in the first place. So, like, that's not that's not really fair, right? You know, I mean, the original, like, you know, I would say the original promulgation of the rule should have gone through NEPA. Okay, so, but it didn't because of neglect. So, how do you do that now? I mean, that's that's a more difficult question. It's like, once you haven't been applying NEPA for fifty years, it's obviously more more difficult than if you you know, factored it in in the first place. So, and I'd also say, 
there's no real need for more discretion because um, agencies also have a, tr a tremendous amount of discretion in the in the way they do NEPA. You know, there's no, you know, it's a procedural statute. They can take any action they want, you know, no matter what the costs to the environment are. They just have to have thought about it first. And there's a lot of times when they'll say, do an environmental analysis in EA, and they'll say, you know, we've concluded there isn't any you know, environmental cost to this, and, and you, you, know, you could probably challenge them on that, factually speaking, but the courts don't really, they don't really enter into that. They're like, look, you, you just had to prove you thought it through. You just, you just have to, you have to prove you took a hard look at the, the words that the court looks, uses. You took a hard look, and if you took a hard look, you get deference. So like, I think they already get deference. So I'm not, I'm not worried about, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, I don't really think they need special deference in immigration in the sense that since it's a procedural statute, they already really do get deference as long as they take a hard look. You know, that, that's all they have to prove in court. So if I, if I were telling them how to do it and they, and they could, they could do it in many ways if they were going to set out to do this now. But, you know, I think the first thing to do would be to repromulgate uh, their their NEPA procedures in the first place where they set out, you know, when does, where they decide when do we do an EA, when do we do an EIS, you know, how do we make that determination? So, you know, I mean, I think a good point when an EA should be done is like when they create like a new visa, something like that, you know. Not necessarily every every single rule, but like an EA could be done when when a new visa is created. So you know, so all right, how how many people are going to come through this new visa, et cetera? You know, what will the effects be? What does the public think? Where are they going to go? Where do we think they're going to go? Does that make sense? Thank you. But it, there's there's many ways there's many ways to do it. They have a huge amount of discretion in the way they they choose to do it. So, just to kind of take this sort of agreement on public participation and kind of poke at it a little bit, one of the types of tools available to agencies often is something called negotiated rulemaking, and I'm wondering. Uh, NEPA kind of gets at this a little bit, but what happens in negotiated rulemaking is an agency at the outset identifies certain stakeholders and then puts them in a room, has a mediator, and then they all work on a schedule to come up with a rule. And I'm wondering, is there any opportunity for doing that sort of thing? Particularly, uh, I'm thinking of maybe with rulemaking from DHS or whatever, whatever splitting things up a little in like locale-based chunks. So you get a rule, instead of having a rule with visas, you'll have a rule with visas where you put everyone from maybe a sanctuary city in with the, and say, look, we've, we've got, we're, we'd love to expand this visa program, but we want to take into, consider, into consideration um, environmental impacts, et cetera. We'll streamline this process. And we kind of, and we want to know what you, San Francisco or wherever, think about this program because we're looking at resettling them in that area. So kind of like this is, I understand there are many statutory, potential statutory uh, problems with this. But what I'm asking is, is there opportunity for sort of cross ideological agreement on something like a more negotiated rulemaking type framework um, in order to kind of obviate the divide between different locales, some of which may be less 
inclined and some of which may say, you know, please do alleviate the regulatory burden and we'll explain to you how we'll minimize the environmental impact and, and et cetera. I'm just curious the panelists' thoughts on, on something like that. I can take a little bit of that. Oh, is it working still? Um, so first off, I mean, anything would be better what we have than what we have right now. So um, I'm all for that if that's uh, something that's possible. Um, but there are a lot of like more localized immigration rules than I think we, we think about, um, especially once we start to get into um, like the Pacific Islands, things like that. Um, I know Guam, uh, CNMI, um, they're exempt from certain uh, visa cap requirements because they're so far out from you know, the continental U.S. that it would be very difficult for them to get workers. So you know, Congress has passed um, special exemptions for them that allow them to have you know, localized um, visa caps for H-2B workers, for example. Um, so I think it is a, a possibility, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about the statutory um, statutory authorization for something like that. I mean, I think I think what I would fall back to is, um, you know, negotiated rulemaking might be a more formal instrument than the instrument we already have, which applies transubstantively to all administrative agencies, um, which is the notice and comment process. Um, and so that's supposed to be a process that would allow for public engagement. Um, and in one of the rules that is in the paper, but that we didn't talk about today because it's been so rapidly evolving, um, the public charge rule is one of the few rules that did go through the notice and comment um, policy. Um, the notice and comment process, for those who aren't familiar, the public charge rule is one that would redefine a term that's been in the um, immigration statute for years um, to uh, sort of increase the rigor um, of the standard of who someone could become a public charge. Um, and so if an individual were to accept, for example, food stamps or Medicare to which they're legally entitled, that could still be um, counted against them in a later stage, um, such as when they apply for a green card or seeking naturalization. Um, so that went through notice and comment. Um, it attracted thousands of comments. Um, it's not clear, as it is never clear <laughs> with an agency, exactly how they will handle the thousands of comments. Um, and, and how much it will affect the influence of the rule. Um, but once the rule came out, presumably in part because it went through notice and comment and it was so very much on the public radar, um, it led to eight lawsuits and was enjoined a week or two ago. You know, and so it shows whether or not you agree with the substantive ends of the rule and what it was trying to do. It shows that if you go through a more democratic process, um, it can allow groups to insert their various interests in some manner um, in a way that simply wouldn't be possible in the alternative. I guess we'll open the floor to, to questions. We've got Hi, thanks. Great panel again. What, what a great day. Uh, my question is for Ms. Axelrod. Um, I and, and I also want to touch on Adam. Adam's comments, which I really appreciate. I actually had a lot of the same questions. I was thinking of hypotheticals, you know, anytime population growth. So those two ideas were related. But um, it seems to me that that to, to start applying NEPA anytime that there's population growth is a normative judgment that has to be made by Congress. You know, whether it's immigration or whether it's one of these hypotheticals that Adam and I had similar ones in mind, it's not really a question of degree. It's, it's a categorical normative choice that 
population growth or any policy that would result would have to go through NEPA, then then there may be some drawing I mean, of line. Uh, NEPA specifically mentions population growth as mm-hmm. one of the concerns of NEPA. So, I mean, I didn't make up population growth as a concern of NEPA. It's in, right there in the statute. So, and like with, that that's why I'm that's why I'm. I don't think population growth is the only Im- environmental impact of immigration. For instance, I mean, I think there are others. That's the main one, mm-hmm. um, but it's also a, a stated main concern of the statute. So, with, and with regard to immigration in particular, that's, I mean, that's it doesn't mention immigration, but in you know, in 1969, there was much less, much, 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 much less immigration than there is today. So, you know, I mean, the the 1965 Act really kind of was what kicked off, like you know, modern. Larger numbers of immigration, but it really, you know, it didn't. It didn't come into effect. It took, it took a couple of years to come into effect, and then it took a few years after that to really make its make its actual effect be felt. So, like in 1969, there was very low levels of immigration, you know, and in 1969, you know, that was that was the end of the baby boom, right? So. In 1969, if you said, you know, what causes population growth? They would have said people having kids, right? So when that changed, when that shifted over from, you know, population growth not being a decision of American families to have kids, more kids than, you know, more kids than replacement, but a, a decision of the government to to continue increasing the population by, you know, encouraging people to, by, by giving permits to, from people to, to come in from other countries to this country, I mean, I think then it becomes a government policy of population growth. And I think it's pretty squarely under NEPA, um, which concerned itself with population growth, even if it didn't say immigration-driven population growth. I guess just a couple of quick follow-ups. One, I just don't know that much about how NEPA has been applied. Has it been applied to any programs involving population? Well, it so the CEQ's regulations, which were which were promulgated in 1978, talk about talk about population growth as an indirect impact, but say that indirect impacts need to be discussed just as much as as direct impacts. So. Yes, it, it does say you need to discuss population growth, like, and it, you need to discuss growth-inducing impacts. So if you look at environmental impact statements, they're constantly talking about population growth. We have to do this because of population growth. So population growth is, like, all over NEPA. Like, it's just everywhere. So I think it really, it really makes sense. And again, I stress, like, this is not, this is a procedural statute. This would not be, like, you can't have this immigration program because it's environmentally bad. You know, like it's not like that. It just means you have to think it through. So I, I mean, I feel like the the standard for it applying to something that will have a big environmental impact, such as bringing thirty million people into the country, you know, it's it's not it's not so unreasonable as, as people would you know, seem to think well that can't, can't be i mean you have to apply nepa if you if you have a, you know if, if you have to apply a nepa analysis to you know graze to give someone a permit to graze like 30 cows on land like 
why don't you have to have a NEPA analysis before you let in 30 million people, right? I mean, it's just, it does, it does not, it's not like the impacts we're talking about are so much smaller when it comes to immigration. I mean, they're really not. They're much, they're much larger, in fact. So, so if I could jump in on this, because yeah. this is one of the real challenges of NEPA in general, is NEPA is always a statute that's dealing with hypotheticals. What could happen, right? It's what impacts are reasonably foreseeable. Um, and sometimes that turns into, and you look at the NEPA cases, it is, you know, an exercise of, of counting angels on the head of a pin. Um, this came up a lot after 9-11 when there were NEPA cases. I remember there was a conflict between the Third and the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit case was called Mothers of San, Lu San Luis Obispo um, for Peace versus the NRC. And there was a case in the Third Circuit. And the people were looking at energy infrastructure like nuclear, you know, um, storage facilities and saying, you know, the NRC should try to guess if a terrorist were to attack this storage facility with some kind of weapon, what are the impacts? You have to think about, well, what are the weapons? What are the possible impacts? And basically the difference between the Third and the Ninth Circuit was the Third Circuit said, well, you have to think sort of through three layers of causation. And the Ninth Circuit said, no, it's four layers of causation. I mean, it's really, it's very, very challenging. Um, what Julie's hypothetical, though, sort of illustrates it, though. If you need... If, if a NEPA analysis might be required for federal approvals for some grazing permit, why wouldn't you need that for, you know, large population growth? It's because with the cattle grazing, we know where they're grazing and we know what kind of cattle, right? There's more specific, there, we have more sort of concrete knowledge up front about where and when and what. With immigration, that's in general foggier if we don't know where people are settling, we don't know what their impacts will be. One of the ironies um, though, is, you know, Andrew a moment ago referred to sanctuary cities. The more that patterns of immigration become more predictable, mm -hmm. the more that sanctuary cities attract people, um, um, that actually, ironically, creates more certainty around the possible impacts. At least we have a better picture of where people might settle. And so the irony is, I think, the more certainty we see around patterns of immigration, thanks to things like certainty, the more salient the NEPA issues become. In some ways, the greatest argument against NEPA in the context of immigration is, well, it's, we have no idea what the impacts could possibly be. We don't know who they are, where they'll go. But more and more, if policy tends to give us sort of real, sort of uh, a better ability to predict who and what and where, then NEPA becomes a more salient issue. Uh, we'll go to the uh, next question, but I will just note one sort of coda on this. If you look at a lot of the environmental justice stuff that came out of the last administration, um, they were very concerned, not with population growth per se, but really about maintaining traditional demographics in certain areas. So when you put a housing development up, there's a lot of concern about, you know, uh, we've got a historically whatever area and, and, and this is going to change the demographics. And that's something that, that they take, they've taken a lot into consideration in a lot of di different regs and different agencies. Um, so yeah, back, back over there in the yellow, and then we'll move forward to Professor Kagan. Hi. Further to Adam's point, um, the science is now sufficiently clear that the carbon footprint of each American can be determined. And average use of water, roads, food, etc. So we might not know exactly where people are going, but we do know what the carbon footprint 
of the average person is and what their patterns of consumption are. And these are specifically the kinds of cons environmental concerns that NEPA is supposed to be looking at. Um, further, I would add that nationwide environmental impact studies are done routinely by agencies. So this idea that, well, we just don't know where these people are going, I just don't think that really, really washes. But I don't think, I, actually, carbon footprints seem to me to be actually the, the maybe the worst example for an EPA analysis because people are going to breathe on either side of the border, right? Their carbon footprint isn't going to change. It's you know what? People's water, environmental water impacts go up exponentially when they Changes immigrate into the United they, States. Yeah. And one of the things, wait, 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 they're, they're their consumption carbon, goes up. They're, they're emitting more carbon? Yes. Oh, yeah, yes. big when time. People, when people immigrate to the United States, their carbon uses goes up oh, like quite mm -hmm. a lot. In mm -hmm. fact, something like, uh, Leon Klinkwitz and Stephen Camerata um, did a, did an analysis of this, and they they found this was a few years ago, so I'm not going to quote it exactly, but they found something like immigration to the United States was 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 responsible for something like five percent of the increase of global emissions, like because immigration to the United States causes them to to use more carbon, and that makes sense because people never people tend not to move to a place where they're going to live like smaller. They they usually will only economically migrate to a place where they, you know, they get they get to so we'll know, get have a categorical exclusions <laughs> for the wealthy. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. I think we had Professor Kagan had a question. And then we'll move back over here. Hi, thank you. Um my my questions for for Julie and I think follow David's questions quite a bit. Um, I am, I think, in a similar light. I'm puzzled, actually, by the. You make a good point that Congress actually mentioned population uh, growth in NEPA, but I am puzzled by what it could possibly mean. Um, and uh, I have, I have one thought, although I'm not an expert in the area. The troubling issue, I think, is that in this discussion, I have no doubt that it can be calculated what my carbon emissions are and what an average resident of the United States carbon emissions are. I'm sure that could be computed and has been, but uh, we are still then analogizing a human being to pollution or to cattle, I guess. And uh, that obviously raises a number of, of concerns. That wasn't what, how I meant it at all. I mean, I'm, I mean, people have environmental impacts. Well, I have no doubt about that, <laughs> but I think that at a first level, I think that if Congress had meant this as a means of of uh, applying to in that way, at a minimum, we might have wanted Congress to speak much more clearly before we even deal with what might be some pretty grave concerns that it might raise. Because any, as I understand it, NEPA is alienage neutral, right? And so is carbon footprint, right? It doesn't, the fact that I'm a U.S. citizen does not change my carbon footprint. It's more my lifestyle that affects my carbon footprint. So that would be NEPA's concern about my existence and anything that would force federal agencies to therefore discourage population growth would think lead us pretty quickly to some very disturbing policies, immigration, one of them, but not the only one. And so I want to suggest another possibility. Is it possible that the reason Congress mentioned population growth might have had to do with, say, in a development project that it's a plus factor, as in a reason we need to give this permit? No. 
I mean, they, they were, so they were, they were pretty down on population growth but when, when they passed NEPA. Did they <laughs> want to then encourage contraception through NEPA? I mean, it's so strange... they, they did in fact, I, I mean, they, they wanted, they, at, at the, they also, at the same time as they passed NEPA, they, they, uh, they commissioned the Rockefeller Report on Population Growth. And so, I mean, and the other thing is, I mean, you can, you can have a, a, like a parade of horribles about what this, what this might mean, what this could apply to. But, I mean, really, population growth does not have that many aspects. There's, there's immigration, you know, net immigration. There's, you know, death. There's fertility, right? There's only really three things that affect population growth. Right. And, I mean, I think we can say you know, fertility shouldn't be a government policy. And even if, you know, even if we don't, I mean, naturally speaking, Americans, you know, Americans have basically replacement level children by like by free choice. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you could say, you know, I mean, you can say like, oh, but it wouldn't, wouldn't, this is, this is so terrible because this, this might lead to like a one child policy. I mean, nobody's discussing a one child policy and it's not even, it's not even necessary. I mean, like, we're, we're not we we're not even getting there with that with with because just because people aren't having they're not they're not choosing to have large families by free choice so it's it's not it's not really a a horrible that actually exists in America today. I mean, here's an example: uh, say the federal government approves a highway project in Las Vegas forty years near Las Vegas forty years ago. We know it's going to make that place marginally more attractive place to live. You're going to have neighborhoods and, and so on. You're going to have more draw on water. It's that is going to have much more impact on local uh, wildlife and, and, and animals that rely on like scarce water in Nevada. Like that's actually a very straightforward impact, environmental impact affected by environmental growth. Okay. So I don't, I don't really recoil from the, the idea that this is, involves people and their, and their impacts. Again, for me, that's sort of, that's straightforward NEPA. Um, yeah. But it's again, it's about how what's the how how much certainty do we have when we could, when we're trying to think of concrete impacts in certain places at certain times. I mean, the, the, I think of the classic example is like they're suggesting. I mean, a highway project in a very heavily populated area, and Grandma is like, "Oh my gosh, there's going to be all this crime. There's going to be so many more people over there. It's going to be terrible." And that's like that's like classic what they mean by populate. I would think what they mean by like population growth or change. So um, this gentleman in the middle and the orange has been pretty patient right over here. And then it may not be wildly known, but in Japan, they sell more adult diapers than infant diapers these days. But my question is a couple of things that Professor Chen mentioned. One was what I call sponsorship and the other was national injunctions from district judges. I can recall when my father, after World War II, had to sign in a number of relatives from Europe on the basis that they would not be on welfare for two years. He had to step up and say he would pay for them for that amount of time. Does that law still exist? And a panel question to the general panel, what do you think about these nationwide injunctions from some 
shopped judge. So I guess I'll take the first the first stab at the public charge rule. The public charge rule goes back into the late 1800s. Uh, it's still there, even though we don't have these new, more draconian public charge requirements. Um, what was enjoined was um, just an expansion on what we already have. So it's in statute, um, one of the grounds of inadmissibility is if you would become a public charge. Uh, no, it's a requirement for a lot of things. Um, you, if you're going to have uh, a family member that you're bringing over, you do have to fill out, um, unless they have sufficient assets, um, an affidavit of support where you say, you know, I'll, like, exactly like your father, I will um, take care of this individual and they will not go on public benefits um, within a certain period of time after um, they're introduced in the United States. What was enjoined was this thing that, you know, you can't ever take SNAP. If, if you do take SNAP, you know, you're, uh, it's a negative factor. Um, if you're disabled, it's a negative factor. If you don't have a credit score, which nobody outside of the United States has a credit score, it's a negative factor. That was the rule that was enjoined. But the rule that you're talking about is in statute and is still in place. Um, and as far as the nationwide injunction goes, I mean, I think at my last count, it was seven courts have uh, enjoined this rule. So I feel it's eight now. So uh, I feel okay with it. I was being in more in general <laughs> than just this particular public charge question. We seem to have a lot of injunctions of anything that the current administration wants to do. There was also an injunction against DAPA. I, I mean, I would say, you know, yes, there there was an injunction against DAPA, and and that's true. But I, I mean, I I do think I I believe that nationwide injunctions have gotten out of control, and and I, I think seven judges is is not that many if they consider themselves part of the resistance. I mean, you know, I I I don't. I mean, even. You know, we, we sort of have a situation where even if the administration, uh, you know, wins in court in front of other judges, it just takes one nationwide injunction to stop a rule. And, and I, I think that that's like a that's a, that's a problem if you have to if any any rule has to go through every how many federal judges are there? every single federal judge, you know, in, in the in the United States is is. Every single district judge is, is too many district judges that have to like it. All right. Well, uh, I think we're at time. Uh, so please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you.